0: Again, I'm excited about you guys being here. I'm excited about this series in Acts. If you're new, we're, we're taking this semester and going through the first, uh, about the first seven chapters and a few extra verses um, in Acts. We'll stop very early in Acts chapter 8. And we're calling this, this series Unleashed because we want to see what does it look like when the early church, the early disciples who, had, who um, walked with Jesus for three years, and then all of a sudden they're unleashed into the world. They get the Spirit, um, Jesus ascends, uh, and they had this mission to be his witnesses to Jerusalem and to Judea and to, Samaritan, to Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. we want to look at what does it look like for these disciples, these believers in Jesus who had never lived out their faith in society, had never been without the authority of Jesus walking around telling them what to do. What does it look like for them to share their faith, to live out their faith, to be disciples in a world um, which brought, by and large didn't care about Jesus in which many of them were hostile to Him. And we said that this is important for us because and it's important for you guys because as college students you're kind of in a similar situation. You're learning to live out your faith outside of the structure of your family, maybe your home church, and figure out what it means for your faith to impact your friendships and your finances and your jobs and your major and your, and, and your relationships and all these things. And we want to take a look at that. And we are in the middle of, of spending three weeks looking at Acts chapter 2. And it's this moment where, where the Spirit comes down. We looked at it last week. The Spirit comes down on the disciples um, they receive the Spirit, the, 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 um, they begin speaking in tongues, and they run out into the court or the, the road, we're not really, a uh, temple courtyard or the road, we're not really t- told where they are, um, but they begin speaking in tongues, and, and what that means is they're speaking in languages that they hadn't learned, and people are hearing them in languages that they know that they don't know, right? Um, and, and, and people are resonant. something's going on, and last week we realized that what's, one of the things that's happening is they're getting mocked. Right, The audience is looking at them and mocking them. And, and, and actually, and we're going to see this over and over and over again throughout Acts, that even though the church is opposed and made fun of and mocked, is that God gives them that opportunity for them to share the gospel. Um, that what enables them to speak the gospel to this crowd that they're about to speak to, that Peter's about to speak to, is that they look foolish and they're made fun of. And so last week we kind of began the speech from that mindset. But what I want to do uh, today is look at it from another vantage point, another perspective. What would it be like to be a person in the crowd hearing Peter speak. This is the first sermon, Christian sermon, that's ever preached. This is the first time that the the disciples share the gospel. This is the first time they stand up in front of a crowd and try to explain to them why Jesus is is so important and why Jesus demands to be your Lord. And I wonder, and some of you are really familiar with this, if you've been around church much, if you've read your Bible much, this is probably a really familiar passage to you. But I wonder what it would be like to be in that crowd. What what festival is it? No. Pentecost. It's a one-day festival, 50 days after Passover. And, and, and it was originally a harvest festival, and, and, and uh, estimates are there up to 150 to 200,000 people that crowd into Jerusalem, which would, would have been about a 40 or 50,000-person city. And, and they crowd in, um, and, and, and there's a lot of bustle going on in the temple. And can you imagine being a person there in the crowd? There's thousands. This is the largest crowd that you've ever been a part of and it's such as that this is one of the high point of your of your religious lives this is these uh, this festival is one of the three pilgrimage festivals which means that as a jewish person you wanted to try to make it to one of these festivals each year and so people traveled in and they bought or brought uh, they bought sacrifices there or brought them with them to they bought them um, and then they were sacrificed and it was this huge ordeal. And there's a ton of, of kind of hustle and bustle and, and like a home game where, where you're, um, I know that you support Auburn throughout the week, but actually being there at the game and there's all this excitement and all these people who are supporting Auburn, you are even more excited and more invested into your support and being a fan of Auburn. Um, when your political, um, uh, uh, when the political party that you support actually has a successful election, you're excited, right? You're, you're more amped up. You're more excited than you would typically be. And if you're a Jewish person getting to come to this pilgrimage, this is kind of one of those moments where, yeah, you're a believer. Yeah, you're faithful. But this is one of the high points emotionally of the year for you. You're getting to be at the temple, the place where you believe God dwells. You're getting to make a sacrifice, which you think is important to your faith, to your spiritual life. And you're around thousands of other people who believe the same thing and you're t- maybe tired, it's dusty it's hot, you've been in and out of the temple and you're surrounded to all these people and all of a sudden this group of men come out and start speaking this langu- all these different languages these are, these are country hicks they're Galileans, right? They, 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 uh, they speak with an accent and they're not educated and all of a sudden they're coming and speaking in more languages than you thought anybody could know and you have no clue what's going on um, people are mocking them, maybe you're mocking them, but one of them stands up and he speaks. And this is what he says. Turn to Acts chapter 2. And I want you to realize what it would be like to be a person in the crowd, because you're not just, you don't just have all this, uh, all this excitement about being in the temple. There's a tremendous amount of anticipation. Because as a Jewish person, you know that God has promised that His kingdom will come. And and, and the person that would bring his kingdom would be the Messiah. The kingdom is what you've wanted, what you've waited for. Because you have the Romans ruling over you. And they're they're oppressive. They give the Jewish people a little bit more leeway than they gave other people. The Jewish people could practice their own religions. They had that right. Um, They typically didn't interfere too much with the selection of the religious leaders for the Jews. um, But they still were oppressive. You still had to pay taxes to Caesar. Um, Like any occupying force, um, they still did a lot of un, un, uh, injustice to the people that lived there. Sexual assaults were high, right? Th- uh, theft was high. Um, uh, just kind of physical abuse was high. And so if you're a person living, if you're a Jewish person living under the Roman Empire, you're ex- you expect that God is going to do something great, that he's going to send his Messiah, that you're going to kick the Romans out, and that God has promised that his kingdom would be a place where everyone worships God, where, um, where, where people live long lives, where there's peace, Right? Um, and you have experienced people dying. You've experienced kids dying, loved ones dying. You've experienced the injustice of the world. You've experienced wanting to be closer to God. And you know that the Scriptures have promised this. And in fact, there's such a fervor for this at in, in, in this time period that Jesus was just one of, of over a dozen people who claimed to be the Messiahs, to, to be the Messiah. We, we lose that fact. But there were a lot of people who rose up and said, I'm the one that God sent to set up the kingdom. And people followed them. So Jesus is just one of, of several people that claim to be the Messiah. And so if you're a Jewish person, you're expecting the Messiah to come. You want him to come. This is everything you've wanted um, for in your life or from a religious standpoint. And now you're at the temple. You're making these sacrifices. There's all these people around. And these guys stand up. And Peter says, um, verse 14, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk. Because remember, if you remember from last week, that they're speaking in all these tongues. and, and, And so some people thought maybe they were drunk and just babbling. And he says, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So what you're seeing is what was prophesied about. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And notice, I know we, we read that very briefly last week, but notice what all Peter is saying to them. He's saying, guys, the, the, the moment you've been waiting for, the last days, the days when the um, Jewish people thought of, of, of two ages, right? There was the present age, which was an evil age, which was an age of suffering, an age when God's reign, God's kingdom wasn't fully here, but there was an age to come. The kingdom of God was coming in which God was going to reign fully. And Peter says, um, Peter quotes back from Joel where he says in the, ver- the very last moments of the present evil age, right before God's kingdom comes fully, um, what you're going to see is the spirit being pulled out, poured out, right? What you're going to see in this transition, what you're going to see when the kingdom of God comes is God's spirit comes on people and they prophesy and they have visions. And it's pe- notice it's men and women, young and old. Everybody's doing amazing works of God um, because they have the spirit. And that's a sign that, that this time you've been waiting for is here. That's a sign that, notice what he says in verse, um, the end of verse 14, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. That's a sign that the day of the Lord is here. And it's a sign that a day of salvation, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that the time for us to be saved is here. And so he stands up and he speaks and he says, what you guys are seeing is evidence that the moment you've been waiting for, the moment when God brings his kingdom fully, the moment when the Messiah is here, the moment when people are saved, that's at this moment. You're not seeing drunk men. You're not seeing a bunch... Well, you are seeing undeducated Galileans. But you're not seeing a bunch of drunk country hicks just yelling in the temple courts, right? It's not an Alabama game. It, what, you're seeing, what you're seeing is evidence that the moment you've been waiting for is here. Now, if you're a person in the audience, what are you expecting at that moment? What are you thinking? What are you believing, right? Is this true? Is what he is saying is true. Is this really the moment we've been waiting for? Is the Messiah really here? And and, and Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. The second time he tries to get them to listen, right? Jesus of Nazareth, right? Fifty days earlier, Jesus was was publicly crucified. Jesus was very popular. He couldn't get away from the crowds. It was very well known that he was crucified. So almost everyone listening to this would recognize that name. Jesus of Nazareth. Was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through Him, as you yourselves know. It's very well known that Jesus was a miracle worker. In fact, Josephus, writing a, a few, uh, about four decades after this, um, or, or more than that, um, that Josephus would actually, when he talks about Jesus, Josephus was a Jew. He didn't believe in Jesus, but when he talks about Jesus, he de- he, he de- describes him as a miracle worker. Right, so it was well known that he was somebody that God had worked powerfully through. And he says, this Jesus, verse 23, this man was heav- handed over to you by God's deliberate plan in foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. All right, what, what is he saying in verse 23? In your own language. This is the first time that he kind of twists the knife to him, right? Okay, you helped kill Jesus. He's speaking to Israelites. He's kind of talking to them as people in the nation of Israel, right? The way that you might think of citizens of a country. You're kind of somehow responsible for the things that the nation does, that they, that, you know, the participants in the nation. So he says, you guys, you know, Jesus was handed over to you and with the help of wicked men, which might be the Romans. It might be the Jewish leaders. Scholars are divided on that. But with the help of wicked men, he was put to death. But what else does he say in that verse? Yes, yes. Jesus was crucified. You all know that. Crucifixion was shame, shameful. You didn't expect the Messiah to be crucified, but Peter stands up and says, Jesus was a man that God worked powerful miracles through. You saw it, and he was crucified. But I want you to know this. I want you to know that wasn't an accident. I want you to know that wasn't Jesus' plan go awry. I want you to know that that wasn't Jesus' failing, that God planned that. God planned that before the creation of the world, that that Jesus would be crucified by the Romans. He would be put to death. And if you're in that crowd, and you thought Jesus was just a rebel, maybe you were one of the persons that were crying for Him to be crucified because you thought He blasphemed, or you thought He was dangerous, or you just turned to the whole mob with the mob mentality and decided that He was going to be killed, and you hear Peter stand up and say, He did miracles, you see the Spirit working through us, which is a sign that, God's, uh, that, that the time of, God's, uh, 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 of the new age, of, of God's kingdom coming, that's a sign that that's here. You see the Spirit being poured out upon us. And Peter stands up and says to you that that crucifixion wasn't a sign that Jesus was a failed Messiah. It was what God actually planned to happen. But then he says in verse 24, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand I will not be shaken therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices he's quoting from Psalm 16 here my body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the... oh okay I've never... good all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nothing like violence at Diva. Uh, <laughs> because you will not, verse 27, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Notice, I mean, again, this is the first time the gospel is being proclaimed and Peter stands up to these guys and he says, look, in Psalm 16, David's speaking about someone in um, the, the holy, your Holy One, there's all these different language that led a lot, Jew, some Jews to think that Psalm 16 was about the Messiah. And, he, and, and, and notice in verse 27, there's this promise that you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Right? In other words, there's a prophecy that this person would not be contained by death. He would not decay. There's a Jewish belief that the, body, that the soul left the body after three days. It's kind of the point at which decay set in for them, right? And so the thought is that this person would not be dead very long. He would not even begin decaying. He's been dead so short before God rescues him from that. And notice what Peter says in verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. We don't know exactly where it was located, but there, there's writings at the time where they knew where David's tomb was. It was actually somebody that was trying to steal tra- like, uh, valuables from it uh, for a little bit before this. So there it was, it was public knowledge that David has a tomb. What's, what's his point? What's, why does he say verse 29 after the psalm? I want you to see how he's getting, these, how he's getting the crowd to think. Yes, David's still dead. But Psalm 16 is written about somebody that wasn't going to be dead for long. Jesus was crucified. He was raised from the dead. The, one of the prophecies about Messiah says that he's going to be raised from the dead. And David was not raised from the dead. Meaning that this psalm can't be about David. It's about the Messiah. And Jesus is the one that fulfills it. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an own oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. He being um, David. So a descendant of David is going to be on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God, had ra- God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. So, you remember in the crowd, and Peter says, here's the prophecy, the moment you've been waiting for is here, and, and Jesus wasn't who you thought he was. Jesus was the person who who is bringing in the time you've been waiting for, the kingdom of God coming, the spirit coming. He's going to use this phrase in chapter 3, right, the age of of restoration, a time of refreshing. All these things you've been waiting for, Jesus was the person that was supposed to bring it. Jesus was the person that God planned to bring it. And and, and David prophesied about that. And he says, uh, verse 33, Exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So you see us speaking in tongues. That's because Jesus was exalted. He got the Spirit. He gave us to us. We spoke in tongues, right? More evidence piled on. Um, Verse 34, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, and by the way, what's evidence that David didn't ascend to heaven? That his his tomb is still there, right? Um, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Um, that's the most quoted Old Testament reference for the, uh, in the New Testament about Jesus. Because this is, this is how they, they thought. is that Look, this has to be about the Messiah. This has to be... Um, they thought it ultimately pointed to Jesus because it's David's Lord is going to sit at the right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 36. Therefore... Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, don't forget, both Lord and Messiah. What does Lord mean? What, is, what does Lord mean? He's, he's made Jesus Lord. What does that mean? Master. Master. King. King. Sovereign. Sovereign. Yeah, he's the ruler. Jesus is in charge. This is, by the way, one of the reasons it's so important that he's exalted to the right hand of God, to the throne, is because that's where he's running things from, right? That's a a position of power. That's a position of, 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 of the king sitting and running his kingdom. What does Messiah mean? Anointed one. It's the one they've been waiting for. And so Peter stands up in this long speech, and I know that, That took a a, a little bit to walk through, but I wanted you to see how he's talking to them them for the first time, how the first gospel message is presented to these people. Um, How would you, I'm talking about like in a sentence, how would you summarize this? It's almost like now is the time, like this is it, like this is go time. Yeah, this is it. The, what you've been waiting for, what you've been hoping for, is now. And what else? What would you add on to that? Every promise of God is fulfilled in Christ, Jesus. Yes. So, what you've been waiting for is now here because of Jesus. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Lord. And there's one more bit that he points out. <laughs> and you killed him, Right. You've been waiting for this your whole lives. You've been taught about this in Bible school, at VBS. You've been memorizing verses about this. And that time is here, and it's because Jesus came. And guess what, guys? You crucified Him. You missed it. You killed the Lord and Messiah. You put Him to death. You put Him, not just to death, but you, you sentenced Him to the most shameful form of death that was only reserved for, for slaves and people who commit treason. The Roman senators at the time all arguing about how brutal crucifixion was and wanting it banned in the empire and you sentenced him to that kind of death at the hand of, hands of Romans and then it says in verse uh, my bible keeps turning Sorry. then it says in verse 37 when the people heard this they were what cut to the heart do you get why, why you would be cut to the heart in that moment do you get why this would be such a big deal Because you have been waiting for this and you've missed it. He set up this problem for them. The problem is Jesus was the person that fulfilled the very thing you've been waiting for and you've missed it. And the listeners heard it and they felt it and they despaired. Have you ever despaired in this sense? Have you ever been cut to the heart by a message about your spiritual standing with God? Is even though these are first century Jews in a different time period with different concerns than we have, I think that we have been in this situation before and that people on campus are in this situation where even if they don't realize it. Do you realize that at the beginning of this sermon, no one in the audience thought that they had missed out on something important? No one in the audience thought that by not believing in Jesus that they were missing out on something they needed. But Peter stands up and says, the very thing you've been waiting for, you missed. And you killed the one who brought it. That even though that we don't have people in in our world who's waiting on the kingdom to come like this. They don't have all these Jewish prophecies memorized. They didn't go to synagogue every, every Saturday of their lives, right? We still have people that long and desire for things that only Jesus provides. But almost none of them realizes that they're missing out on it because they're missing out on Jesus. You get the power of what Peter is saying. You're missing out on the thing you've been waiting for because you don't follow Jesus, because Jesus isn't your Lord, because other things in your life are Lord. Your classmates, your roommates, your friends, maybe some of you in this audience, that you you long for things in this life that only Jesus provides. I mean, think think for a moment about acceptance. The, the, the biblical world is a world where acceptance didn't come easy. Things were divided into slaves and free, into different social classes and Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans, right? Women and men. Women couldn't even, couldn't, they were so on the periphery of the religious life. They couldn't even go into the inner courts of the temple. And, did you, and do you realize how much people in our society like yearn for acceptance, for significance? Just pay attention to social media. And as I was thinking about this, it thought like social media is, is the perfect example of how people want to be accepted and they want to feel significant. Because here's the thing, really, what you ate for breakfast or dinner or what you did last night is really not all that significant, right? But we put it on and we look and at how many people liked this or hearted it or whatever. I don't really like social media, right, uh, shared it or you know MySpace friends or whatever. I'm kidding. I'm joking. I've never had a MySpace. Uh, and, uh, Like, people in in, in our world want the kind of unconditional acceptance that only Jesus can give. They want the type of significance. Like, your generation, kind of our generation in particular, kind of, you know, we're not just happy with with just a typical job, living in a typical place, buying a typical house. We want to do something that matters. Part of your concern and struggle with your vocation of what you're going to do in life is because you want significance. Your classmates want significance even if they don't believe in God. They want their lives to matter, right? You want forgiveness. And biblical forgiveness isn't just forgiveness from God, but it's, it's a type of forgiveness that sets you right with other people. That's why so often when Jesus forgives people, He tells them to go at peace, which isn't just you're at, you're at peace with God, but you're, you should now be at peace with God's people, right? I mean, have, have you ever yearned for forgiveness? Have you ever talked to a friend who's done something, and, and they know what they did was wrong. If they don't believe in a God, they know that they shouldn't have done what they've done and they can't get rid of the shame. In many ways, we are our own worst critics, right? Like you're harder on yourself probably. Most of you are probably harder on yourselves than anyone else in your life is. Like you you yearn to feel forgiven, to feel accepted, to feel significance, to have purpose in life. But you're really aiming for something. You realize if you read the Scriptures carefully... Um, that, that what Jesus offers is all those things. And in other words, to flip that around, that the problem in your life, and the problem in your friend's life, and the problem in your roommate's life, and so forth and so on, is, is not just that they need their sins forgiven, but they need all those other things. And those are things that the Scriptures promise that Jesus provides. When He stands up, notice... When he stands up to these people, he's not just taking them through all the moral mistakes they made. He keeps it very focused on Jesus and very focused on what Jesus can give them, what Jesus intends to bring, that they really wanted. You wanted the kingdom. You've been waiting for this. You've been waiting for the Spirit. By the way, all, all the Jews had. They knew that. They knew that um, the Spirit was going to come. And he says, "You missed." In the same way, the problem that your friends and the problem that um, other people are and the problem that some of you are in is that the very thing that you desire so deeply, acceptance, significance, forgiveness, right, purpose, are the things that Jesus intends to give you and the reason you're missing out on that is because you're missing out on Jesus. Have you ever felt that despair that, that what if the thing that could give you significance and meaning and purpose, what if you've missed out on that? What if your life is messed up and you don't even realize it because you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord? Like That's the point that they're in. Notice how, notice how Peter deals with this. Verse 37. They say, They cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? If you've grown up in church, that kind of the, 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 the transition from, from 37 to 38, the transition from what should we do to what you should do, we do it, we go over it too quickly. Because if you're in that crowd, there's no guarantee that there's an answer to this. You are all used, used to areas of, of your life where you had one chance. And if you missed it, you didn't get it. If you didn't make it at tryouts, you didn't get to walk onto the team two months after the season started, right? You had one opportunity, you missed it, you don't get another shot. With tests, they don't just keep giving, the teachers to set out tests and you get to take them whenever you want to until you're satisfied with the grade, right? You have one chance. If you get an F on a test and you go to the professor and like, hey I didn't really do well on that test, what can I do? A lot of professors, not all professors, but a lot of professors have been like, well there's nothing. You don't get to, you don't get to retake the test, right? If you ask somebody out and they say no, and it's a staunch no, and they don't change their mind, there's nothing you can do about it, right? (laughs) Like we just, we're so used to grace that we forget that you can be in this situation, you can be at this moment of despair, cut to the heart, frantic, fearful that you've missed out on the very thing you've been waiting for your entire life, and and, and there might not be another chance, because by the way, you killed Jesus, (laughs) right? At the, I mean, kind of what's logical at this moment is that the way, to have been, to, the way to be a part of the kingdom was to follow Jesus when he was on earth. And so when you stand up and, and Peter says this, that, hey, he came, he's the Messiah, he was the one you've been waiting for, he brought, the, he brought what you've been waiting for, um, and you killed him. The, kind of the most logical explanation, I mean, the logical conclusion is, we've missed our opportunity. And so they're concerned, they're frantic. What, what should we do? And Peter responds this way, well, realize that these are very gracious words. These are exciting words. This is relief to someone who thought that they were condemned to death. And he says, verse 38, he gives them two things to do and he tells them two things that are going to result from that. And we need to separate this, and I'm sorry to do so much preamble, we have to separate this from kind of our theological debates. They're not aware of it, right? Um, Separate this from all the questions we come to this and just hear it as a person standing there. And Peter says, repent. What does that word mean? Turn away. Turn away from what? Okay, so kind of turn, turn, turn away your direction. To turn yeah. So in the Bible, it's kind of a turning from the world to a focus on Jesus. Yeah. What else? These are all right. Potentially, a bit about face, a military term about face, turn around, start going the other way. Okay. Yeah. So about face. A change of. mind. Huh? Say it again. A change of mind. Yeah. So change of mind. I mean, the 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 um, um the common word for repentance in in Greek is, is a change of it's kind of. Etymologically, it's a change of mind, a metanoia. Yeah, so good. I know that's what you meant. Um, To give your life to Christ. Yes, when he stands up and he says, repent, (laughs) it's not, notice, it's not feel bad. It's not you should be ashamed of yourself. It's that what's required of you is for your life at this moment to turn completely around. Specifically, turn completely around about the person of Jesus. Because your problem isn't that you feel guilty. Your problem isn't that you feel ashamed. The reason you have missed out on what you've waited for, the reason that you stand judged because you crucified Jesus, is because you rejected Jesus. Like the central thing here is their is there relationship with Jesus. And he says... What you need now is your life to completely turn, and Jesus is to now be your Lord. Jesus isn't the person you pushed to the side. He's not the person you rejected. He's not the person that you shouted to crucify. He's now the person that is Lord, ruler, master of your life. So the first thing he tells them to do is to repent. The second thing he says is to be baptized. Now, if you're a Jewish person in the crowd, separate from all of our theological debates, what does that mean? Ritual, so what, so ritual cleanliness? By the way, we don't 100% know because there's so many things going on at this time, but, but what, what, what's kind of the different connections you would make with be baptized? Yeah, so ritual cleanliness, why would that be a connection? Uh, the temple. Okay. So there's, there's these uh, uh, kind of ritual um, baths that they would take that you can actually see uh, the, the um, archaeological remains of where they'd go in and go out the other side, so it's a, clean, a cleansing. Um, what do you cleanse from? The sin, yeah, <laughs> uncleanliness, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot on that. Yeah, yeah. See, now you do. Uh, what else? I mean, there was a, a submersion aspect to being converted to Judaism. Okay. Yes. Very good. That proselytes, Gentiles who wanted to take, who wanted to be Jewish, and they, and this was not an uncommon group of people. This was not an um, insignificant group of people. Uh, there's a lot of religious interest and fervor in first century uh, Roman Empire, particularly around the Mediterranean. Uh, Jews were 10% of the empire, right, spread all throughout. So there's a lot of interest in it. And so the, 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 the process by which somebody often converted was they would go through a submersion process. They'd often uh, kind of disrobe and go in one side and, and, and kind of uh, go out the other side of the bath and get new robes. And it was this kind of uh, symbolism of a completely new life. What else? Oh, back John the yes, John the Baptist. Yeah, so John the Baptist is calling the people and saying repent and baptize them in the Jordan, right? And one scholar says that maybe what's going on there is this idea of of, of um, um, if you remember in the Exodus, they they have to cross through the river at the end of the exile, and that maybe what, the imagery there is that your exile away from God, away from the promised land, away from the kingdom is over because you've been you've gone through the waters. So there's all of this symbolism going on, right? But realize that, that, that when he says be baptized, that this is a, um, these, these, that to these people, this, this would have a lot of significance. It would signify a new life. It would signify a complete change in your spiritual and religious life. Uh, notice that it means that if you have gone to church and you think you're a religious person, as all these people would have been, they're there for sacrifices, that to be baptized means that now, your life needs to so completely change that you go through the same process that converts go through. Right, So he says, repent and be baptized. And he says, for the two things that come from that. Um, and by the way, we, we shouldn't separate re- uh, repentance and baptism, right? They're, they're not separate here. It's not like here's these two separate steps. It's kind of part of the, re- the process of repentance is baptism here, right? One scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, says that it, the New Testament knows of no unbaptized Christian, right? That they go very closely together. Um, And he says, uh, you will get forgiveness of your sins. So you'll be clean, your sins uh, uh, will be forgiven. What's what's most prominent in their mind about their sins at this moment? That they killed Jesus, yeah, (laughs) right? Um, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what you see poured out upon us, you guys will get. Um, So you repent, you're baptized, you get forgiveness, you get the Spirit by the way, I wish we had time to kind of go into the whole kind of uh, theology of the spirit, but know that that's a symbol that you're now a part of the community of God, that, that God now dwells with you, that the sins what separated you from God, uh, preeminent of most is that you killed God's Messiah, you killed the Son of God, that now that's been forgiven, and now you have the spirit. God dwells in you. You're part of God's people. You're empowered by God. All these things in the Old Testament are coming out and come together, and they would understand all this. The promise is for you and your children and for all those who are fall, far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and ple- he pleaded with them. Um, by the way, this is for free, but just know that almost all the speeches we have in Acts are summaries. And, they all, and, and, and one way we know that is they give this a little bit, like in verse 40, like he, uh, uh, with many other words, he warned them right, and pleaded with them, which is a common way with somebody writing a history to say, this is kind of, this is kind of the summary of what he said. Um, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to to their number that day. Um, What I... um, what I want us to see there, and the reason I wanted to go through it in such details, is I wanted you to see how this something that's so common to us—the gospel and the kind of our response to the gospel—how how, how um, if you would have been there, how you would have felt it, right? That this is this is gracious. That this is good news. That um, think about it, kind of translated back into how we talked about it um, uh, a few moments ago. That that whatever it is in your life that you've been seeking—fulfillment, significance, forgiveness, um, uh, purpose that you are missing out on these things, whether you realize it or not, because you're missing out on Jesus. And notice the grace in that. Even though you've rejected the very person that God sent, you've rejected the very person that's supposed to bring this, that you now have... Um, the good news is that you now can have those things by just being made right with Him. That you don't have um, You don't have to kind of give up. These things aren't out of grasp now. Um, you, weren't, you weren't guaranteed. You didn't deserve the grace of God, but that he's now given this to you. But that what he requires of you is a complete change of life. What he requires of everyone is a complete change of life in this moment. Um, I was trying to think about this. Um, you know, one, one of the moments in my life that most completely changed my life is the birth of my first son, right? my first child. And it's like, it's like all of a sudden that's a moment in your life, uh, in my life, that everything changed for me kind of the direction, what I thought, what I desired, how I spent my time, everything changed. And it's that kind of radical change, it's that kind of radical change of life that Peter's calling them to. That if you see someone who, who all of a sudden realizes that they've rejected Jesus and missed out on him, and, and their life completely changes, that that's what Peter's envisioning here. My father was, when my mom and my father were married, my dad was an atheist. Um, and, and, and about three or four years into their marriage... Um, he became a Christian, and it was a complete change of life. My, my uncle, who's been a, a preacher for 40-something years, says he's never seen somebody's life change so much, right? Like all of a sudden, in his entire years of, of ministry. And that's what Peter envisions, is that people who are missing out on what they want the most because they rejected Jesus, that they turn around. And at this moment, the disciples stood up and proclaimed that. And the response was 3,000 people came... <coughs> Into the church, 3,000 people had no access to the very things that they wanted, the very thing that they thought was out of reach. And maybe some of you have rejected Jesus, even if you've grown up in church, and you're realizing that the things that Jesus offers us that you don't have, that what Peter calls you to is the same type of change of life. I encourage you to reflect on that. I encourage you to reflect on the need for your life to center on Jesus as Lord. Because if you have something else as Lord of your life, then you have not had this change of life like Peter speaks of. And we also encourage you that, that uh, if you have not been baptized, you need to be baptized. Peter calls these people to be baptized. The, the Scriptures constantly speak of it, right? Um, scholars will point out that there's not unbaptized Christians in the New Testament. It's a very important thing um, in the Scriptures. And if, if you have more questions about that, I would love to speak to you about that. But I, I want to close just on um, one thing, and kind of switching back the perspective from being in the audience to being a disciple. And this, this idea of being unleashed to the world. Let me just say this, that if you, if you take to heart kind of the, the, the core of what Peter said to them, if you take to heart that there's people in your life, who they're missing out on what they most desire, even if they don't realize it, because they're missing out on Jesus, then don't you have a burden to share the message with them just like Peter did? Don't you have that burden to share with them? Notice that what Peter says wasn't kind of this great work of genius. He just, he just tries to connect with them that you guys are missing out on what you want, and it's because you're missing out on Jesus. It's that simple to bring that to somebody. And I would bet that there's someone in your life that, that God is calling you, that God has placed them in your life, for you to share that message with them. That If you're excited about the good news, if you're excited about the gospel, if you're excited about um, uh, the fact that what we want in life we can have through Jesus this deep level of fulfillment and forgiveness and all these things then you should share that with somebody there's no reason that that the people in this room all of you shouldn't be sharing the gospel with the people in your lives and by the way there's no reason just to connect up with our Sunday morning class that there's not people in this room who are going to be missionaries Um, there's no reason in a room this size that one of you doesn't feel the call to go overseas to people who haven't heard the gospel to tell them but the question is do you believe the good news is good enough to devote your life to? Do you feel like it's important enough to have a difficult conversation with? Do you feel like your friend missing out on what they want most in life because they rejected Jesus is important enough for you to take a moment to explain to them that Jesus is the Messiah and Lord and He's the one who can give them all that if they just repent, if they just focus their life on Him, if they just are baptized? Let's stand and sing.